Check, check. There I am. Hey, why don't you guys uh, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 23. That's where we're at this morning. There's a few announcements in your bulletin. Um, just a reminder, the, if you took one of the names for the students in Juarez that we're going to be buying the Christmas presents for, you have until the 14th or January 15th, excuse me, to get them here, so keep that in mind. <coughs> also, there were a few of you who had taken a name and you didn't get a box. If that's you, there's a box right outside the door uh, on the left-hand side with your name on a yellow sticky note. So if you didn't get a specific box and you want one to put the, the gift in, there it is. And also coming up at this in the beginning of this year in January, on Tuesday, January 17th, uh, the Financial Peace Course is coming up. We've talked about that. We've got several couples signed up for it, and we do have babysitting available now. So if you have been waiting to make a decision to come because you're needing some child care, uh, that's available and it's free. It's included, actually it's included really in the price of the, the, the whole class. It's a nine-week thing. And lastly, some of you signed up for the home groups. It is the first of the year. We're going to try to get that all lined out in the next couple of weeks, but it's not too late. If you want to be involved in a home fellowship, um, please sign up. I know we have the exact uh, information, but we want to see who's interested before we begin to try to place a day, because we'll talk to whoever's interested and try to make it work for you guys. So um, uh, sign up there, and uh, there'll be details that follow. <clears throat> All right, Genesis chapter 23. I have to, I have to do this because um, I think I would be just neglectful as a pastor if I, if I didn't. And um, uh, about a year ago, I brought to your attention a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 17. I don't know if you guys had heard of that prophecy before. It's kind of an obscure prophecy in regards to end times events. But there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 17. And basically what it talks about in regards to end times things is that one of the things that we need to be looking for is the destruction of Damascus. And out of all the ancient cities that have <clears throat> ever been, that's recorded both in secular history as well as biblical history, Damascus, even though there's been much conflict and wars all around <clears throat> Damascus and in Syria and Turkey and all these other Arabic countries that are around there, Middle Eastern countries, Damascus has never been destroyed. Yet the Bible predicts its destruction. I don't know if you've been following the news very much lately, but there's a battle going on in Syria. There's an existing a civil war battle going on with, with the existing president and who is backed by the Russians and the, the forces that are fighting against this president or this dictator is really what he is, um, are joined with, uh, these rebel forces are joined with forces from Turkey. And, and if you've heard a lot in, in the news lately about a, a place called Aleppo, um, and the destruction of Aleppo. Well, Aleppo is really the last place, if you will, before the battle gets taken to Damascus. And one of the things that makes it really interesting is two, two things, actually. If you remember the Gulf War, one of the reasons that we attacked Saddam Hussein was because there was a belief that he had Weapons of mass destruction. 
Well, many people believe that those, and, and this isn't a political thing. I'm not trying to make it political, so please hang in there with me. Many people believe that those weapons of mass destruction are being stored, that they were moved to Damascus and to Syria. And, 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 and so that has great potential to assist in this destruction of the people and, and, and the city there. Not only that, Israel has been flying stealth missions into Syria because Israel, Israel had adopted a policy called the Ezekiel policy. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that years ago. And after Israel was attacked over and over again after they first became a nation, they as a country adopted what's called the Ezekiel policy. And what that simply means, to, make it, to simplify it, is it means that they're not going to be the first ones to be punched in a battle, in a fight. That when they see a potential threat, they are going to take all necessary actions to, survive, to, to ensure the survival of the country and wipe out these threats. And they've done so since then, historically. We've seen them gone in. We've seen them go into Iran and destroy nuclear power plants uh, or, or potential nuclear sites that have the ability to give Iran a nuclear weapon because we know that Iran would use that against, against Israel. So I'm trying to bring all this together for you because... Not only do you have Russia and Turkey and other Arab forces all centralizing together in Syria, just now outside of Damascus, kind of like what the Bible said, you have Israel who, who is foretold or prophesied that all people will turn against them, flying missions also into Syria with an effort to take out some of these threats so that they're ensuring their own survival. And basically what you got is a couple of things. First thing you have is... Um, you have everything ready for this great biblical explosion to take place. And what I mean by that is this, these in-battles, the destruction of these, of these um, nations and these people, just like the Bible says is going to happen in the end days before the Lord returns, or, or the Lord's return as regards to the rapture of the church, and then some of these battles that take place. There's a little... There's a little you can fall on either side. I'm not trying to get into the exact timing of all of these things. All I'm saying is, if you were to look at this as if you were in a movie, in, in a theater where you're watching a play, <clears throat> and the curtain's drawn back, and all of a sudden all of, the, all of the people who are performing the play are on the stage ready to do what they're going to do, that's what's happening before us on a world scene in regards to what the Bible says. Everything's in place. Everything's in place. And the curtain, God has drawn the curtain back for us and, and for us who are believers because God tells us that he lets his kids know what he's going to do before he does it. And so God's drawn the curtains back for us and he's going, look, it's all there. And it's about ready to, to it can happen at any time really where where um, all of these people and all of these players who are on the stage are going to begin to fulfill out the very last things that lead to the end as we know it and the Lord's return. It's exciting going into 2017 and seeing this because not only, it's, it not only is it exciting to see where it's going, but it's exciting to see that our, the Word of God is true. You ask any political pundit or any historian and they go, we have no idea why there's such a fascination with this little piece of land there in the Middle East and why all the world's eyes are always upon it and why all of these things are happening with such great interest. Why? Why do people want a barren 
place. I mean, there's really, I mean, there's some oil and there's some natural gas. But, you know, I mean, and we know this really, as I was talking to Rich the other day, we know that Russia would like to have some of that area because they want uh, a, a seaport. And, and, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it, but really it doesn't make any sense with the great interest in, in this other than the fact that God's ordained it that way. God has set it forth that way. And um, as it relates for us in regards to the excitement that we need to share in all of this is because we're not really looking for these battles as so much as we're looking for um, or these events are, are, are put forth for us as believers so that we would be looking and listening for that trumpet sound where we will be caught up together and taken to be with our Lord forever. And as you go into this next year and we see these things in light of where we're even at in Genesis chapter 23, what we have to keep in mind, guys, is that this is not our home. It's not our home. Just like Jesus said, even though we may die, even if we die before the Lord's return, we're still going to live. We're going to live on. And hopefully, for everybody here in this room, that, that we escape even a physical death and that we get to experience the rapture and to be joined up together in heaven with our Lord and Savior as events play out here. And then we return to be be uh, on this planet, planet with our Lord when he rules and reigns. And it's, it's, it's exciting times, and as, and, and as I encouraged you earlier, so if you're looking forward and, and trying to make some goals or some resolutions or to just reevaluate your life for this next year and go, what do I need to be about, what I need to be doing, you have to keep these things in mind. Because we need to be living not only with a hopeful expectation, but with anticipation of the Lord's return. And the way we live and what we do must reflect that. It must. So, in Genesis chapter 23, if you're there, stay there. I'm going to read to you a familiar psalm. It sets the stage and kind of uh, sets our mind for what we're going to read here in Genesis chapter 23. And it's Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And before we go on to read Genesis chapter 23, I want to point out that when we take the things in this chapter and compare them to the things that we're going to read about next week in chapter 24, I want you to kind of hold on to some of the things that we're going to talk about as we go forward, because we're going to see an interesting contrast between these two chapters that illustrates for us how there are times of suffering as well as times of rejoicing in this life that we've been given to live. And you guys are all going, yep, I know that one. Times of rejoicing times of suffering, seasons that we all go through. And in chapter 23, what we read about here is we read about a time of suffering for Abraham and how he mourned, we're told, and wept when his wife, Sarah, had died. But then next week in chapter 24, I'm going to read about a time of rejoicing. 
a time <clears throat> of rejoicing in place of this of, and in place of Sarah's death we're going to read about the the Isaac's wedding Abraham's son the, the son of promise and how Abraham sought to choose a wife for his son a wife who would we're told who would be a comfort to him after the death of his mother now one of the things that I want to challenge you with leading into next week for you who are interested in being bible scholars is is Go and see how long that chapter is, and ask yourself this question as you begin to read to it, is why would God, why would the Holy Spirit dedicate 60 verses to one marriage when there are so many other great things in the book of Genesis that are accounted for us? It is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It is the most detail and the most time spent, if you will, to any one account given throughout the book of Genesis. And we've looked at some pretty important things. Really, the, the, the creation story, the way God created everything, is basically contained in 11 verses. And if we take that in comparison to chapter 24, where God details the, 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 the marriage, if you will, and the wedding of, of, of Isaac in, 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 in such a detailed and long account in 60 verses, there's got to be a reason for it. So I would challenge you to, to go and seek some of those things out. But I point out for you this contrast because the contrast in these, in, these, in these next two chapters, in chapter 23 and 24 as we go on, they represent the reality of life and how this specifically this journey of faith that we're all on, that we've seen Abraham um, 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 going through and have been going through as we've studied this historically and reading through the book of Genesis, that this journey of faith that we are all on is going to lead us through deep valleys filled with tears and sorrow, but also to the tops of hills where there is times of great rejoicing. And as we consider the hills and the valleys of life, it's important to point out in, in, in this chapter, in verse 2, that we're told that Sarah died in the land of Canaan. And, and lots of times we go, why is something there? I mean, so she's died, she died, we know that, but why is it important for us to know that she died in the land of Canaan? The promised land, right? The land that God had brought Abraham to. And it's important because it's interesting. The interesting thing about this land that God brought Abraham to and gave to his descendants, to his descendants is that in addition to being described as a land of blessing, right? A land that was flowing with milk and honey. As a, as, a, as a metaphor of just the riches and the, and the blessing that God had there for his people and for Abraham, we're also told about the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land in which Sarah died. We're also told in Scripture that it's a land or that it was a land of hills and valleys. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 10 and 11, it says this. It says, it says for the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you've sowed your seed and you watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven. And man, there's spiritual, there's spiritual representation there, and there's spiritual application there. And when we consider that this has a meaning there beyond just a geographical description the implications then carry into our lives as believers who've put our faith in Jesus. 
In other words, the land of Canaan, this land that the Bible says is filled with hills and valleys, was given to God, or was given by God to the Hebrew people. But this promised land that the Old Testament makes known to us is also a spiritual picture or has spiritual representation into the life that we've received in Jesus. And like the promised land, our life in Jesus is an abundant life, right? A life that is flowing with milk and honey. It's a blessed life filled with the promises and blessings of God. Furthermore, we know that this life in Jesus, just like the promised land was for the Hebrew people, is that this promised land, our life in Christ, is a life of rest. A place where we drink the water from the rain of heaven. That's what it said in Deuteronomy about the promised land. It's different than the land that they were in in Egypt where they had to do work to bring forth the harvest. Basically, what they're saying is God does all the work in the promised land. And, and for us, we see that, that this meaning where we can too drink from the rain of heaven, what it means for us in the promised land is that the work through God has been done through His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. But it's also a life of hills and valleys. With times of rejoicing and times of weeping. And as we read about the events in these two chapters that recount a time of weeping and a time of rejoicing in the land of hills and valleys, we should ask ourselves this question. The question is, is how do we respond? How do we react as believers who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus when we're on the hilltop and when we're in the valley. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then, verse 3, Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham, verse 7, stood up and bowed before himself, to the people of the land, to the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet me and meet with, with Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at a full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the, and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you to bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for your field, for the field. Take it from me, 
<coughs> and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Ephraim weighed out the, or, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephraim, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. And so, verse 17, the field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were with all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave in the field, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is, in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham, Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Father, give us understanding. Lord, help us to see beyond the historical count into the examples and to the, to the truth here, God, that you wish to speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you know where each one of us is at in our lives and in our walk with you in this journey of faith that you've called us to. And I pray, God, that, that your words and, and your truths would find a spot to encourage us, to give us joy, to give us hope and peace, Lord, to help us to live a, 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 a life that honors you and glorifies you, whether we find ourselves on the top of the hill or in the, in the, in the valley, Lord. And help us to remember, God, wherever we're at, that this life that you called us to, that there's seasons and there's times for things. And Lord, but ultimately, you're in control of all of these seasons and times. You're in control of our lives, orchestrating and, and, and bringing forth not only your will into our lives, but your will through our lives. So Father, let us submit ourselves to you again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we begin to look at this, we can almost begin to eulogize Sarah as we reflect on her death and in her life. And there's no death, there's no doubt that, that Sarah had been a, a good wife to Abraham and a good mother to Isaac. And even though she had her faults, she did, as we all do, we know that she had found favor with God. And he had changed her name from Sarah, which means contentious. We know that he called her Sarah, which means princess. In addition to this, she's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, as one of the great heroes or heroines of faith, an honored place. Furthermore, Sarah is mentioned, and she's named in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as a good example for Christian wives to follow. And then again, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, there Sarah is used to illustrate really the grace of God in the life of a believer. <clears throat> significant things for us to look at and really as we reflect on, on, on the life and the woman who lived to be 127 years old. And when we read in these first two verses about Sarah's death and how Abraham mourned here and wept for her, we see how her passing was a sad thing for Abraham, as it would be for any husband who loved his wife. But as we also see here that even when a believer who has... Eternal life, even when a believer has the hope of eternal life, our feelings and tears of sorrow that come are normal, even though we know that they live on. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 4, it tells us Solomon writing, he says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck or harvest what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance. So even though we know that those we love, when they pass, that they've gone to be with Jesus, those feelings of sadness and those tears that they bring, they're appropriate. And I point this out because in my pastoral and in my hospice chaplaincy experience, there has been many believers who wrongly thought that their tears or their feelings of sorrow were inappropriate because they somehow demonstrated some kind of lack of faith. In fact, I've heard people tell each other that they shouldn't cry or ask or tell me that they shouldn't cry because they know that their loved one is in a better place. And even though this is the truth, the fact of the matter is, 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 is God has made us with this ability, with this blessing to be able to weep. And he expects us to cry. As a matter of fact, God expects us as the family to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. To join in, to experience it with them, to be connected to others on that emotional level. And in addition to, to knowing that God made us with the ability to, to weep, we know from John chapter 11, verse 35, that even Jesus wept when his dear friend Lazarus had passed away. And the interesting thing is he wept even knowing that he would raise him back to life just moments after. So we must not see grieving or weeping as something that is wrong. But we need to realize that it's one of God's gifts to help us heal those hearts that break in those moments. When the people that we love are taken away from us in death. However, guys, as believers, there's another side of it. And we need to keep in mind Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 13 and 14, which tells us, specifically saying, to not sorrow like those who have no hope. In other words, the grief or the, 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 the tears and the sorrow that a believer experiences in times of suffering, in those valley times, that, 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 it should, that we should be different, that those things for us should be different than those who have no hope, than those who don't believe. And it's different in that we're not overcome by our grief because we know that death is not the end. We know that death is rather a promotion into a glorious new beginning. So Abraham loved his wife and he showed his love and his grief, his love for her, and the grief that he experienced as a result of her loss by weeping. Yet, when we read on, what we see, guys, is that Abraham also had a faith and a hope. He not only had sorrow and grief, but he had a faith and he had a hope. And his actions that followed were a testimony that Sarah had died in faith and that her death was not an end. A testimony that was made known to those around him. And in verse 3, we read of his actions where we, where we read here 
<clears throat> and it tells us then that Abraham stood up before, from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, when we look at this event and really take into consideration Abraham's life as a whole, we have to conclude that his loss of Sarah was a great test of faith. And I think when we lose people who are dear to us, a child, a spouse, a mom, a dad, when we lose someone who's dear to us, it is a great test of faith. And for Abraham in, in his life, as it is probably in our lives when we come to those moments of times, that, that death and how we respond and what we believe in regards to our faith is the greatest test. And for Abraham, it was a great test, and it was probably the greatest test he ever faced as well, even greater than the test that we read about in the previous chapter where he was called by God in faith to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him on an altar. Remember, Isaac was the son of promise, and this is why I think it was a greater test than even the one that we had just read about, because Isaac being the son of promise, God had told him that Isaac, from Isaac, a mighty nation would rise up and, 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 and from all of his descendants, and that this descendants, this nation, the Hebrew people, would be a blessing to all the other nations of the world, because through them, the Messiah would come. And so when Abraham's faith was being tested and what we read about last week by God in asking for Isaac's life, we're told that Abraham, he believed that he obeyed and he believed God because he believed in obedience that God would either raise up Isaac from the dead, we're told, or that God would provide another sacrifice. The point is, is with that test, as is often with the tests that we go through in those valley experiences that are different than the, the, the test or the experience of death, is that in that moment, for Abraham, he could conceive in his mind what God might do in order to remedy the dilemma that he was facing. You ever do that? You go through a test of faith and you go, oh, I could totally see how God could do this, and God could do that. And so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to journey with him on this. And, and, and not that it's still not a step of faith and you're moving out because nine times out of ten, God does something that we didn't expect at all. But for Abraham in that test, he goes, okay, I know what God's promised. I know what God's told me. And I think that God might do one of these things or something like that. And it was a test of faith, but it's not the same kind of test of faith. However, as a result of Sarah's death, Abraham's faith in this instance was extended past the temporal and into the eternal. As he had to rest in the fact that Sarah would live on after her physical death without seeing anything. In other words, this test of faith required Abraham to simply trust completely and wholly in the promises of God, even there, there would be nothing that he could see in his own eyes or conceive in his own mind that could assure him that Sarah was still alive in eternity. And the way that Abraham reacted to his wife's death during this time of sorrow and time of mourning and time of weeping reveals to us that he never wavered in this test. He kept his eyes on God the whole time. And, 
and, and on that eternal hope and promise of a heavenly home. And how do I know this is true? Not only because of what he does here in this text, because it's clearly told to us that's what Abraham did in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. And in the passage, it says this, speaking about these patriarchs of faith, including Abraham and Sarah. And, and he said, God says, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but only had seen them afar off and were assured of them and they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things, meaning more than just them, but us also, those who are in this journey of faith, the author of Hebrews goes on and says, he says, for those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Faith. So because Abraham had faith in God, and because Abraham had hope in the eternal, his weeping and his mourning, as we see here, was only for a time. And in verse 3, it says that Abraham stood up from before his dead. And in doing so, what we see is he began to deal with life. The life that he was still given to live. The responsibilities and duties that he still had. That not only incorporated or encompassed the reality of Sarah's death... But as we read on, he still had a son who needed a wife. And often when we grieve like the rest of the world, in those valleys and those times of, of sorrow, when we get caught up in that, one of the things that you can realize where, you, where you, you're grieving and sorrowing like the rest of the world who have no hope is, is that we begin to neglect or forget about the life that we have been given to live and the duties and responsibilities that we've still been called to. The point is, because Abraham had hope, he exercised faith. Because Abraham had hope, he exercised his faith. And how do we know he exercised his faith? Because he went on living. He went on living. And no matter what the reasons are, guys, for those times and seasons of weeping that we go through, it doesn't just have to be the death of the loved one, because we, there's many times and many kind of seasons and opportunities for sorrow and weeping, hills and valleys. You know, we must not allow for our grief to control us, and we must realize that there comes a time, and there's a time, a time. I'm not saying don't be there. I'm saying just don't live there. Go through it. Understand that there's a hill top that God wants you to soon be on. But when we go through those times, there comes a time for us when we also must accept what has happened. We must face life and fulfill the obligations to those who are still alive and to those who may have died. Yet because Abraham was by his own admission, according to verse 4, a foreigner and a visitor in this land, we see that in accepting what had happened and fulfilling his obligations, that he then had to make a request for a place to bury his wife. 
And in light of this, we should once again take time to remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in chapter 2, where we are called time and time again also foreigners or strangers, right? Pilgrims and sojourners in this present world. Furthermore, like Abraham, who lived in a tent, we need to be reminded of the fact that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're also living in a tent. Paul says, as he writes to the Corinthians, that these earthly bodies of ours are tents. And we know that the temporary dwelling place that we've been given will be taken down at our death. And we will move then on to a heavenly country, also like our forefathers in faith, to a city that's been prepared for us by God. Now, in asking for a burial place or a place to bury his wife, it's clear that Abraham had a specific place in mind. Did you realize that as you were reading through this with me? It was like as if he stood up and kind of dusted himself off and washed his face. I kind of pictured that happening. Maybe fixed his hair a little bit and began to deal with business. It was like he was very intentional. He knew what he wanted. He had a specific burial place in mind. And according to verses 8 and 9, we see that it was this cave owned by Ephron, the son of Zohar, and it was called the Cave of Machpelah. And even though we're not told exactly the reason for why Abraham wanted this cave, we see from the negotiations recorded a little further on in verses 11 through 15 that this place was important to Abraham. It was important, considering even though he only wanted the cave, he was willing to purchase the whole field. If you notice in there, when we're told about the location of the cave, as he's speaking to the sons of Heth and mentioning the one cave that Ephraim, he says, on the edge of his field, meaning he could get to it without having to disturb anything else that was going on there. I just want the cave that's on the edge of the field, but that's not what Ephraim wanted. Ephraim wanted to sell the field and the cave. And Abraham was willing to pay the price for the whole field in order to get the cave that rested on it. And not only that, we see that he was willing to pay exactly what was being asked for it. 400 shekels of silver. Now I tried to do some research on whether that was a fair price or not. And really there's Bible scholars on each side that says, man, that was a lot of money. You should never paid that. And others say, oh, that was, a, that was a fair price. And that's why he didn't bargain. But the truth is, is at this time, it would have been very customary to start off high and then kind of do a little bartering back and forth. And we already know Abraham was into bartering because he already tried to do that with God and Lot, right? But we don't see none of that going on because Abraham was willing to pay it because it's, it's what he wanted. There was something there. And because of this, I wonder why he wanted the cave. And I think the reason for it is hidden within the name, the cave of Machpelah. In other words, the name Machpelah, guys, is what it literally means in the Hebrew. It means one single word, double. Double. And many modern Bible scholars believe that this cave was named double or called double because it had two doors. Meaning it had, if this is the case, then it had a way out that was different than the way that you came in. There was a way out. There was a way out of this tomb. 
And knowing what we know about Abraham and his faith in God and his hope of eternal life, we can see that this cave was a proper burial place for his wife because it was a visual reminder. It was a graphic reminder that for a child of God, physical death is just a door that leads through the door into eternity. Jesus has given us a way out, another door. We escape death. The tomb does not hold us. And when we consider the cave of Machpelah, it's important to point out that it, that it would also be the tomb for Abraham, for his son Isaac, his wife Rebecca and Jacob, and his wife Leah. And this is a cool fact to consider in light of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12. When Jesus was speaking about the resurrection from the dead and the hope of eternal life. And in that passage, Jesus was speaking to a specific religious sect of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees. And they were a group who believed that there was no resurrection from the dead. That death was it. And in verses 24 through 27 of Mark chapter 12, we're told that it says that Jesus answered these Sadducees and he said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of the Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He says, you are therefore greatly mistaken. Jesus' point to the Sadducees was that if these forefathers who were not alive, the very ones that are buried or were buried in the cave of Machpelah, if they were not alive after they had died, then God would have said to Moses that he was the God of, and he would have said that he was the God, that he had been the God, not that I am the God, present tense, active. And our God is not the God of the dead. Rather, he is the God of every living, of every believing person, including those who have died in faith, and yet, as Jesus says, live. So Abraham was able to stand up before or stand up from before his dead, from his wife who had perished. And he was able to walk literally through this valley of sorrow, this valley of death. Because he knew that God was with him, just like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 23. That he was with him through every valley of life, including this valley of death. God was with him. Before I move on, I'll point out that here in verse 6, if you look there with me, these men of the land were told whom Abraham had talked with about negotiating the land and who to speak to. They, they, they said, we don't want to deny you because you're a mighty prince. And, and I want you to know that in the Hebrew, this literally reads a, a prince with God. And some translations translate it that specifically, a prince with God. A mighty prince, that's where the word, that's where the translation to mighty, he's mighty because he's a, a prince with God. And in light of this, we see that Abraham had a good testimony among these men, among these people he dwelt with as a foreigner or as a stranger in the land. And because he had a good testimony, they respected him. 
And when we look at the interaction and the transaction that took place between Abraham and Ephraim in verses 10 through 16, we see here, guys, this is so important because often, I'm just going to go on, but it's, it's, it's important because what we see here is that Abraham conducted himself not only with honor, but with integrity. He conducted himself with honor and integrity and in a time of sorrow. And when Abraham had listened to Ephraim regarding the price for the land, he simply weighed out the 400 shekels and he paid out without, paid without delay what he owed. He paid what he owed, what he had agreed to right away, it says. And these things are important for us to take note of because Abraham's example reminds us that even though this world's not our home, okay, even though this world is not our home, we must be careful to have a good witness to those who are outside this faith that we have. The way we live, the way that we interact is important. Furthermore, when we maintain a godly conduct as well as a godly attitude, in the midst of life's valleys, the ones that we go through, that people see as we're going through these times of sorrow, when we go through this and the unbelieving world looks in, they'll wonder what makes us different when we have a godly conduct and a godly attitude. The world we live in, guys, is keen on making excuses for their behavior and dismissing it because of things they've gone through or because of things that's happened to them. And that cannot be the case for us. We cannot use those things as an excuse to have ungodly conduct or ungodly attitudes. It's not an excuse. Why? Because we have faith. We have hope. We believe that God's in control. We trust in him no matter what. And if he's truly sovereign and in control, we know that God's working all these things out for us, as he says, for those who love him, for good. And not only that, we know as it proclaims in the book of Jeremiah that even in these times of sorrow and these times of griefing, that God has a future and a hope stored up for us. Thoughts of good and not of evil. We have something that the rest of the world does not have, and that should influence and affect the way that we live. Our faith should affect the way that we live. And we see that true with Abraham here in this time of sorrow, with his godly conduct and with his godly attitude. And in addition to that, what this does is when we act this way, when people see that we're different, guys, it gives us the opportunity to share our faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. So that, they, that, that, that the rest of the people in the world, our neighbors, our co-workers, maybe other family members, they can look and see, and they can see the different and desire and want it as well. Now in verse 17, as we close this out, it says, So the field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, before, <coughs> which was before Mamre, uh, Mamre, uh, the, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, um, which, were all the, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gates of the city. And that's, that's typically where, where um, uh, business was done before the elders at the gate of the city. And in verse 19, this is after this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is, Hebron, again, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it was deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for 
a burial place, as a property for a burial place, a graveyard. And as we close with these final verses, Debbie, if you and Ron want to come up, you can get ready to lead us in this last song. But as we, as we close with these final verses, I want to point out, and you probably um, keyed in on it also, but there's a, there's a key phrase in this chapter. It's used seven times. It's this phrase, bury my dead. Bury my dead. Bury my dead. And it's interesting to note that this cave that was used as a tomb, that this, this burial plot was really the only piece of promised land that Abraham ever possessed. And it's interesting because when we look at this, we see that it's another picture for us. It's another picture of how this world is not our home. And it's a reminder for us to have our eyes fixed always on eternity and not on the temporal things of this life that the Bible says are passing away. You know what? Furthermore, as we take all that in context of what we've been studying, what we see, what we can conclude is that this is exactly what these valley experiences are designed to teach us. To be fixed upon Jesus and upon eternity and not upon the temporal things of this life. It's where our hope is at. But when Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah for a, ter- a tomb and this field with it to bury his wife, rather than, than take her body back to their former home in Ur in the land of the Chaldeans, when he decided to bury her there in the land of Canaan rather than to take her back home, what he was doing is, is Abraham was making a statement of faith. Again, the way he was living in the midst of this situation was a testimony to those around him. It spoke of certain things. And it was a statement of faith to all those who lived in the land. A statement of faith that was rooted in the promise that God had made to him and his descendants to give him this land as an everlasting possession. And one last thing I want to point out in regards to Abraham owning only a tomb. Guys, listen, if Jesus does not return to take us to heaven and our physical bodies die, you know, the only piece of property that each one of us will own in this world will also be a plot in a cemetery. Isn't that kind of cool? It's a reminder that we take nothing with, with us. We leave it all behind. Yet, hear this. If we're living in faith, we'll be investing in the eternal, not just the temporal. And if we're investing in the eternal things, you know what happens in Matthew chapter 6? Jesus says we send it ahead. We're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And if we live by faith, guys, then we can die by faith. And when we die by faith, we can rest assured that we have a wonderful future. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truths and these reminders and these encouragements, Lord, as we head into this new year. Father, we trust and we expect and we look forward to your return. But God, as we wait upon your return, we ask that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live by faith, to live with the, this, this living hope that you've given us of eternal life, knowing, God, that you've done all the work, you've prepared the way, and you're waiting for us. And you're coming back for us. And Father, for that, we rejoice and worship you again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.